it is time you turned your idea into a great reality with Squarespace. Squarespace advertises on here because they know you're neat. If you listen to Cracked, you're, you're uh, just into all kinds of things. Really cool person. And you should show that off with a website. It's 2018 or maybe the future. 2019. 20. I can't count past that, but you probably can. And you should also have a website that shows off you. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracks Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracks. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also getting you straight to this week's conversation because I am thrilled to be joined once again by Jason Pargin, who writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. And I'm thrilled about this topic he came up with. We're talking about supposedly important words that don't actually mean anything. All of the words that we treat as cornerstones of our entire society and philosophies and other really important stuff, but somehow they sneak in a lot of things that I don't think we actually think about when we talk about the meaning of them. Uh, You'll know exactly what we're talking about as we get into it. And spoiler, there's an amazingly long list of them. As soon as we started prepping this one, it wasn't one of those ones where we're like scrambling to find things. We we struck oil. And and I mean like like Beverly Hillbillies, you just drill into the ground and suddenly it's shooting shooting up and and you have to move, you know? So I'm really excited about it. Because as it turns out, language is sort of a big scam, uh, but enough solo language from me. Please sit back or stand on your own two feet, which is an idiom that secretly suggests nobody should help anybody ever. Isn't that strange? We just throw it around. Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Jason, I am so excited to be talking to you about, uh, I don't know, tricks, I guess. Just things people use to fool us every day. Yeah, this is one of my favorite subjects in all the world. And I realize that that retroactively casts a shadow on all previous podcast episodes because <laughs> it makes it seem like like those were, were not my favorite subjects. But this is one that I think about a lot, and it's one that I don't think the average person thinks about at all. Not that I'm not an average person, but it's it's something that once it was pointed out to me, I've become fixated on it. And that I think it's something you see dozens of times a day and it doesn't even register with you. And it's very simply tricks that people use in language to manipulate you that you don't even know are tricks. It's so baked into the language that it doesn't even... You don't even notice it. It's also sneaky because I feel like 
part of the reason people do it is super nefarious reasons to trick us. And then I think it also piggybacks on just how much like cognitive load any of us can handle day to day. I feel like in some of these terms cases, we just accept the way people are framing them because our brain can't keep up day to day with constantly examining all this stuff. Yeah. And to be fair to everyone who uses them, human language is not about transmitting information. It is just <laughs> as often about obscuring information, right? Yeah. Um, because ultimately your function in a society is to try to interact with other people and to get them to do what you want them to do. So there are all sorts of things we say, a very good percentage of what we say that is not simply informing the other person of a thing. It is trying to frame an idea in a certain way is to try to take something that is not a fact, but present it as one just by how you're phrasing it so that they will not question it. Because that is one of the key things language has to accomplish is to make the other person not stop and clarify what you just said, but to rather <laughs> accept what you said and proceed with it. So these are all things that we do, all of us quietly do, that if you were to stop and actually pin somebody down and make them justify, well, why did you phrase it that way? You could spend hours debating it. The first thing we're looking at here, and I think this might have been the first term that sparked it, is just the term real um, and specifically being used to, I guess, make something seem not just positive, but like it's the only way a thing can be. One easy example that if you've watched... Um, like political rallies in the last several elections, when someone talks about real America, I'm glad to be back in real America. And it's usually a right-wing politician usually talking about they're somewhere other than a city. They're yeah. in a small town, a town that has they consider to be blue-collar that's based around coal mining or farming. And they will say, I'm glad to be back here in real America around real Americans. And that is a word that in that sentence has no meaning whatsoever. If you were <laughs> if you were to strap one of these politicians to a chair and demand that they define the meaning of real here, they may fumble around and say something like, well, this is like traditional America. To which you would say, okay, well, what do you mean by traditional America? Do you mean it looks more like America looked in 1778? Because <laughs> there's there's farms and there aren't farms in, you know, Los Angeles or whatever, because there probably are. <laughs> like if you asked, if you went point by point saying, what makes this real America? What makes these real Americans? They could not tell you, but when they use that phrase, they use it in a way that sounds like it is of extreme importance. It sounds like they are not just saying something about those people in those towns, but saying something crucial about them. That no matter how they define, like, give me 10 features of a real American city versus what you consider to be, I guess, fake America. Whatever right. they rattle off saying that, well, people know their neighbors or there's less crime. Like in none of those cases, A, statistically will it hold up and B, 
Will they be able to say, like, well, why didn't you just say there's less crime here? Why didn't you just say it's less crowded? Why didn't you just say it's easier to get reservations to a restaurant because there's fewer people? What is it when you go to a city and you see people dressed in a certain way or they've done their hair in a certain way that makes you say those are phony Americans? But when I see people in that small town wearing flannel shirts um, and jeans what makes that real? What makes that superior, that style of dress superior, that, that yeah. manner of speaking superior to what you get in a city? And they can't say. Some would say it's like a dog whistle, that what they mean is white America. But they would, if you asked the speaker, they would vigorously deny that. They would simply oh, yeah. say, well, it, it's about traditional values. But again, if you try to nail them down on and they say, well, like what values? And they say, like, well, honesty. It's like, OK, are you saying that the <laughs> average person who lives in rural Virginia is more statistically more honest than the average person who lives in New York? Can you prove that? Can you do you have any data? And of course, they don't. The entire purpose of using that word is that. It comes bundled with hundreds of implications, none of which they have to defend. But everyone in that audience still loves to hear it, even though you have said precisely nothing. And I, I love that thing about it breaking down if you try to statistically pin it down in any way. Like even that element of, uh, well, finally, I'm here, not in that crazy hellhole California where nobody's real and yet California's full of rural parts. Like it, it statistically grows, I think, most of our fruits and vegetables. Uh, it's not a, a state that votes Republican uh, for the most part, but it's it's there this real thing. If you tried to point it at anything other than the people who like me, who I'm sucking up to, it, it breaks down completely. Yeah. And even if someone re uses a phrase like old fashioned, but means it in a positive way, like, you know, they have old fashioned food like, OK, but why is that better? In other words, you're using a term that sounds like it's describing a thing that is actually just describing your feelings about the thing. The, the blurred line in between fact and opinion is a lot of what we're going to talk about because people do this all the time. They'll take a term that only describes how they feel about it, but they'll phrase it like this is an attribute of the thing like like we all agree this is real or this is traditional like another use abuse of the word real isn't talking about real food i want some real food and it's usually yeah. in an ad campaign or on a billboard describing something like meat and potatoes or you know something you would get at cracker barrel if you have that chain out where you are oh sure. if for some reason like avocado toast or pad thai or anything like that is not real food. The national dish of basically any other country can be called not real food, which is pretty xenophobic if you actually look at it close. But advertisers and uh, and people trying to make some kind of cultural stance just get away with it all the time. It's crazy. Yeah. Or the way people on the left would talk about some stew that came out of a can. That is not real food. Let's go to this cafe in which the stew cost $17 and get some real food right? because that food is processed or it, it was frozen. And it's like, 
the stuff you ate in that cafe was actually also processed. They they they, just pre, they presented it, and it, you didn't see it in the can. But they, if it's a chain, I'm telling you, they it arrived in their kitchen in a plastic bag. You can't make somebody a full meal in like six minutes if you're making it all from scratch. Um, but again, they will use that in the same snobbish way. Like the food I prefer is real, and the food that you prefer is phony somehow it's new or it's an affectation like people don't really like avocado toast it's just a cultural thing people in california eat to impress each other or to lead right into this next one it's not food that a real man would eat and maybe the roots of this come from how i I think the easy obvious opposite of real is fake and there's probably no context in which anyone's excited about fake, right? Like It seems like real is just a bludgeon to end a discussion by picking out the thing that everyone likes as being what you like. Right. And that's where this can get extremely destructive. And this is why we're doing this episode, because a lot of these are not just about confusing meaning. They're about trying to enforce norms that otherwise cannot be defended. And so when you start doing any kind of phrasing, an ad campaign, anything that's based on eat like a real man, dress like a real man, this is the kind of truck a real man drives, by definition, you are automatically saying everyone who does otherwise is some sort of a fake man or is not adhering to the standards. And that's where you could spend years prying into all of the assumptions that went into their definition of this is what a real man is, because it is just as meaningless as everything else here. Again, if you say, well, they're talking about traditional gender roles, now you have to justify why traditional gender roles are better, specifically the fact that what you're calling traditional gender roles only go back a few generations. They don't go back to the dawn of the species. These are things like, do you think that God himself at the creation of the universe said, okay, men will drive large pickup trucks and women will drive small, dainty sports cars. It's like there are things that only go back a few years that advertisers or just people wanting to insult someone else that are very recent, that they will act like it is ancient and cannot be questioned because it is ancient, right? Because that's the whole concept of tradition. Saying it's traditional is also implies like, well, this is the way we've always done it. And because we've always done it this way, that means it's good. So then when a yogurt manufacturer decides that in order to market to men, they need to put the yogurt in a black or gray container and (laughs) give it a name like, like man fuel. It's right. like, well, this is appealing to traditional masculinity. It's like, okay, so you're saying there's a traditional and ancient and sacred way by which males ate yogurt <laughs> versus how, what, the new age hippies and Hollywood leftists want us to eat yogurt. And in every turn, it is simply attacking the type of man who simply has different preferences to try to make them ashamed and it's usually using that shame to make them buy a product 
or behave a certain way or serve somebody else's agenda, even if it's just an agenda that's occurring at a table in a conversation between two people. It is almost always divisive, isn't it? It's almost never a real man uh, gets along with most people and has empathy. Like it's, ne- it's never to bring us all together. It's just to split us into tinier and tinier groups. Yeah. <laughs> and you could, we've rattled off three examples. I think you listeners out there could once you get on the lookout for any usage of the word real, like go out and get a real job, you'll see the trick that's being pulled on you because it's rare that we'll stop and make them nail down. Like, how did you arrive at this being the real version and these other things being the inauthentic or fake version? Are you saying that because this one is new, it's not it's not valid because you would never say, let me show you a real cell phone. It's my Nokia 3310 or whatever the one I had in <laughs> in 2005 was. Like you would never right. think of that as superior just because it's older. You know, in many cases, we're happy to. And, and like the thing with like real food or traditional food that food was mostly awful. Like the the quality of beef was awful. Like the quality of meat you could get in, in a canned stew or whatever was objectively worse back then. As you said, in many cases, they're relying on a fiction. It's rather taking their preference, their modern day preference for a certain aesthetic and saying, this is real. And therefore everyone who doesn't adhere to it should be ashamed or, because it's they're saying everyone else, it's like a not real or inauthentic version. It's implying those people are being dishonest. Like I think about that original like real America kind of thing. They're going to a rural place usually and saying this is the real America, which we treat as, oh, that's a thing people say. But the meaning of that is also everyone living in cities is fake, which would be an insane thing to say. But they just get away with it, right? And I and I don't understand how they do it because what are people in cities supposed to do different? Are they all supposed to pack up and leave, or are they supposed to like find some empty land that needs uh, habiting? I, I don't know what the the next step would be that they are kind of sort of calling for. Uh, right. What what could they do that would make you happy? Or are there examples of cities that you like? Like, do you say the same thing in Dallas? You know, like I know you'd say it in Austin, but would you say it in Nashville? You probably would have 20 years ago, but wouldn't today. So in, you know, in reality, I think it simply comes down to they, their values are not traditional values because they are, you know, in favor of gay rights. They are less religious things that they think of as like, you know, going back to the founding of America. But even that is phony. Like the idea that, it's a traditional American value to be anti-abortion is a lie that goes back only to the 1980s that that was like a cornerstone of of every right-wing religious thought in America that you have to be anti-abortion that's very recent yeah but yet they will talk about like no we've got to get back to the way the founders wanted it and that is something where they definitely don't want to dig into the actual writings of the politicians at the time. They definitely don't want to dig into what Thomas Jefferson thought of religion in <laughs> 1776. They don't, they don't want to get into that. They're not interested in digging into the details. It just becomes 
a sort of talisman. It's like a, it's a word that is supposed to have an effect on you without having to explain it. And and again, there's people who do perfectly fine versions of this every day. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's always nefarious. For instance, right. if I'm looking at a patch of land and I say it's, it's, it's a grassy lot, then I say this land is green. I'm describing the land, right? It's a color everyone can agree on, assuming they, they all have normal vision. That it's, yeah. it's green. That I'm describing the land. If I say, you cannot build on this land because this land is sacred, I'm no longer describing the land. I'm now describing my feelings about the land or the feelings of other people here. But if I simply phrase it as, hey, you shouldn't build a, an adult bookstore here because this was a Civil War battlefield and a lot of people around here, you know, they want to preserve it for its historical value. That is much weaker than me saying this land is sacred and you can't build on it because that word almost sounds like it has a magic spell that will curse you if you build on it. Whereas if I just express the truth, which is a lot of people around here, it is their opinion that you should not build here. That becomes very weak. So it's the same thing. If you say my feelings about the city are negative, you've said it, nothing at all. It's like, well, who, who gives a crap? Who are you? But if you say I'm happy to be back in real America, suddenly it sounds like you've said something very important, that there is something special or sacred about the small town, that it's it's, it's a magical nebulous thing you can't quite put your finger on. But right. here in the age of reason, we shouldn't be using language that way. We we should be able to, <laughs> to define words because as we'll get into, when you use words that don't actually have a definition at all, language really stops functioning. Well, it even wipes out entire groups of people or places, if you wanted to. Like, I, I thinking about that real America thing as a rural place, it's in contrast to a place like New York City. That would be one of the first things they list is, that's not the real America. But when I lived in New York City in Brooklyn, I lived basically next to a Revolutionary War battlefield. There was a Battle of Long Island in 1776. There was an old stone house that was a key like place people hid out in to fight in. And that's a historical site that was in my neighborhood. New York is where we inaugurated George Washington as the first president. Like You can go that far in either direction on whether New York City is the real America or we can all just like unite and treat each other nicely. How about that? That would be great. Yeah, New York has been a city for longer than almost any of those small towns have been small towns. Those yeah. small towns were empty prairie when New York was a city. And in fact, the values that they think of as being anti-American, values of being a little bit more progressive toward certain things, more accepting of other cultures, more accepting of other religions, more yeah. accepting of different lifestyles, all of those things were here long before many of those small coal towns were ever founded, before the very first person set foot there. Right. And even if you want to make the argument that, like, well, we need to get back to those values that made, you know, like, this is the problem with the cities. They're straying from the values that made America great. Each and every single one of those values, every single one of them, can be rooted back to prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Like that spirit has been there from the very, very beginning. It's just that there has been, there has always been urban areas and rural areas, and they have always had a little bit different values from each other. And I wrote the most popular cracked article of all time about that subject. 
that we'll link in, yeah. in the footnotes because it was about this was prior to, to Trump's election. I explained that there's this divide between red and blue. There's really a divide between rural and urban. And when they say real America, all they mean is I prefer this tribe. But they do not mean one is new and one is old or one is a new innovation and one of is the way that you work for centuries. That's simply not true. Yeah, it falls apart with any examination of history or or just examination of how things are today. And we, we can probably go on into some other terms from here, too. And, and a somewhat related and similar one is the term natural which uh, I think especially fits some of the product kind of stuff we were talking about earlier. And this is one of those things where it is a marketing term where you will find in your grocery store, like they'll even have stuff separated out into another aisle that is the all-natural foods, which in many cases, the composition is different. They may boast that they don't have preservatives. They may boast that they, instead of being made with corn syrup, they were made with sugar, real sugar, or that they have you know only five ingredients in these cookies. But right away, one, to say they're natural, every single thing in the universe is natural. The, the, the chemicals that have been used to preserve the other foods in the processed food aisle are also natural. Whenever people talk about, like, especially people who are kind of on, on the left in terms of ideology, they talk about, oh, this, that food is full of chemicals. It's like, well, the universe is full of chemicals. Water is a chemical. <laughs> like with the word real, they want to skip over the most important step, which is, are any of the substances in that other food harmful? Are those preservatives harmful? Because if they truly are, then that's actually a totally different conversation we should be having. We should be t- talking about banning those other foods. Or are you simply relying on a word natural which is bound up with emotion because obviously if something is unnatural, it is bad. If, if you, if an exterminator came to your house to like get rid of a rodent under your, in your attic and he came back down and said, what's up there is unnatural. You would be alarmed. That's not a good thing. So it is this kind of the same deal whereby boasting that your product is natural or all natural ingredients you are actually just throwing shade on all the other products on the shelf by implying that what they've done is is unnatural, even though both of those things were obviously manufactured in a gigantic factory in huge stainless steel vats. It's like, no, 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 doing things with fewer ingredients is actually the natural way to do it. And it's like, well, yeah, but the natural thing is for food to rot very quickly, which is why people used to only live to be about 30 years old. Like preservatives <laughs> keep the food from rotting. It preserves it. You need to make the argument as to why it's better to have fewer ingredients. It's like, well, no artificial dyes. And it's like, okay, are, are artificial dyes harmful? Tell me how. Give me the data. Show me the studies. You know, again, I understand that maybe some people are allergic, but it sounds to me like you're trying to do the same thing. You're slapping a word on there that sounds like it is extremely important or that you are implying that it is extremely important. That, in reality, conveys no useful information whatsoever. Yeah, and, and it's playing on a distrust, isn't it? Because most of the food that we get 
it just shows up on the shelf as far as we've seen. You know, we didn't see any of the previous steps of packaging it, making it, growing it. So it's it's very easy for a brand to just say, well, ours was made naturally and you should be afraid of all the other ones. Like there's, we don't have a lot of evidence as a shopper walking through the shelves that, that that's not true. I guess we're just stuck. Right. And it's the same shopper that would reject a box of, I don't know, cookies because they're full of man-made ingredients, but will grab a bunch of bananas, even though those bananas are just as manufactured. Like those bananas do not grow in the wild like that. Like you can find photos of what actual wild bananas are, and they're like in this tough husk and the inside is mostly seeds. The bananas you're buying, that is a man-made invention. Those are created carefully and were cloned by people who are very smart and using science to make an artificial food for you. So the line between if I say those bananas are not natural, you'd look at me like I was an idiot. You'd say, what, were they like grown in a lab? It's like, well, no, but they were artificially bred over hundreds and thousands of generations of banana trees to get one that was fit for a market that would stay green a certain amount of time that would peel a certain way that would taste a certain way. Like these are, you know, it was for consumers. There's nothing natural about those bananas or any of the fruit you see there. And you can say, well, yeah, but it's more natural than the box of cookies. Like, I guess, I mean, baking (laughs) things goes back before the history of the written word, you know, the baking of bread goes back so far that we don't even know when it were, you know, when it was invented. So at what point does bread become a natural? At what point does it go from being a natural? Because bread does not grow on trees. It's something somebody made. So at what point do you cross the line from unnatural into natural? And the answer is every single person has a different opinion on it. So the word natural is an opinion that exists only in your brain. It's not an objective definition but you'll use it in a sentence as if it is. Yeah, I feel like we run into a similar thing with the idea of factory farming. I, I hear that uh, term a lot for, oh, this was somehow engineered or or mass-produced uh, crops in a way that's terrible. And I think people imply that that's a brand new thing, but that uh, thing that they're hinting at where there's some sort of just elaborate semi-industrialized farming has been going on for thousands of years. Like I, uh, I just finished reading a book called SPQR by Mary Beard, and it's about the Roman Empire. And she says in it that at one point, the uh, Romans had such a demand for olive oil and olives in uh, sort of the center of their empire that Spain pretty much became a monocrop place. They just kept growing olives as many different places as they could. And that's essentially factory farming too, but it's thousands of years old. So is that traditional? Is that evil? Is that uh, something I should be afraid of or not? I don't know. Sort of similar is like, I think of New York as a filthy city. I think of it as a dirty place. But in terms of environmental impact, that is by far the cleanest way to live. A lot of people in the same building, smaller floor space with one you know set of like heating air conditioning for the whole building like that's about the greenest way you can live versus where i'm at in the suburbs where we're each in our own house each having to heat and, and cool them separately each with a lawn we're maintaining like i yeah. i think of the suburbs as being clean but as the city is being filthy but that's not again if you pin me down on data like in terms of how much waste is being generated for the planet overall 
then no, that's not true. In many ways, you, you know, your people in New York are forced to live in a way that is that preserves space, that pre- preserves waste, things like that, but just because of, of space limitations and cost limitations, things like that. Whereas here, you know, everybody's got two cars, if not more, we're being forced to walk everywhere. Like that's a much cleaner way to live. So, but I, because the alleys smell a certain way, I think of it as filthy, as a, as a filthy, dirty place. In factory farming, is very similar. Because it's very big and produces a lot of waste, you think of it as like the worst of the worst when it comes to civilization. But that is actually a much more efficient way to farm than your organic farm where they've got room for the chickens to roam around and then they've hired someone to go pet the chickens every day. Like that is actually grossly inefficient and very wasteful. The amount of Because yeah. the amount of food you're getting per acre of land, per hour of labor, per you know 100 pounds of feed or whatever is less. So if you're trying to feed the most humans with the least amount of impact on society, then having one gigantic hyper-efficient operation is what you want. And you, and you mentioned the idea of New York City being dirty, which, you know, elements of it have dirt on them for sure. Uh, but you've done some great writing, and and I think we've podcasted a bit about it too. We'll, we'll link it all about the just overall concept of dirtiness being kind of one of these words. It's something that we throw at the other, and it's based in germs and affects our politics and and. I feel like that, uh, as we talk about it now, it almost feels like another opposite of natural, even though most of nature is pretty dirty. I don't know if people have been in the woods or are aware, but it's it's covered in dirt. It's all over the place. Yeah, or what we discussed <laughs> in that podcast was the idea that showering every single day, that if you don't do that, then you're just a, a piece of crap. Like you just, you've <laughs> yeah. given up on life. It's like, that is not normal for humans like there has never daily bathing is not in any way normal. Our skin can't handle it. Our hair can't handle it. We spend billions on products to make up for the fact that we overbathe ourselves to an absurd degree. But we've decided that anyone who doesn't bathe with that frequency is dirty or whatever negative term you want to throw at them. When in reality, we're not describing them. We're describing a norm we've established Whereas the right. most natural way, if we wanted to go back to the word natural, would be to only bathe like whatever to whatever degree is healthy for your body to maintain itself in your immune system, which is much less often than once a day. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. You know, another another natural thing I do is uh, when I take a poo, I poo it into a porcelain bowl and then I fire it through tubes into the city center. That's just what I do because we've done that for thousands and thousands of years, you know? Yes, as God (laughs) told us to do, right. (laughs) Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. And I don't know if people know that it's easy to build a website. Like Fundamentally, it is easy thanks to a service like Squarespace because here's the thing. You might be looking to start a new business or showcase your work or publish content, sell products. Whatever you're trying to do, why don't you start from a template? It'll be created by a world-class designer, so it will look very good. But also, it will be fully customizable, right? So you get that great design, and you get to customize it to you, make it fit exactly who you are and what you're about. Maybe you're selling stuff. Guess what? Squarespace has powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online 
Whether you're selling stuff or just want people to look at it, Squarespace's analytics make your website grow better because you'll know exactly where it's at all the time. Also, everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And buying domains is simple because you'll have Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support, and you'll have their very, very easy platform to work from as you do it. So why don't you get started? Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. Introducing Audible Originals, a new member benefit. Audible Originals are exclusive audio titles created by celebrated storytellers from worlds as diverse as theater, journalism, literature, and more. And every month, Audible members get one credit for any audiobook, plus two Audible Originals from a changing selection that you can't get anywhere else. That is a lot of stuff, and a lot of it's very, very good. You also get access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. They have the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and you can fill your fall with more stories like What the Hell Did I Just Read? Yes, it's called What the Hell Did I Just Read? It is a novel of cosmic horror by our guest today, Jason Pargin, who writes for, as I said, the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. Um, He's an amazing author, if you don't already know that, and his latest book is narrated by Stephen R. Thorne, and it's available from Audible right now. You can plug right into his very, very funny, very, very deep world of comedy and horror all at once. So enough clowning around. Let's get you listening to it. Get your first audiobook free and choose two titles from a curated list of Audible originals when you try Audible for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thecrackedpodcast or here's another thing you can do. You can text The Cracked Podcast to 500 500. Uh, so there's a lot of ways here. That's audible.com, A U D I B L E, slash The Cracked Podcast, or text The Cracked Podcast to 500 500 to get started. With the term natural, I want to get into an even more sinister usage of it, which is when it comes to behavior. Because whenever anyone wants to attack something like homosexuality, interracial marriage, anything down to stuff that our listeners don't feel great about, like certain sexual fetishes, they will describe them as unnatural. That it's natural for white people to marry white people. It's natural for a man to marry a woman. And used there, it is specifically... Just like real, it is to enforce a social norm in a way that people die over because they've implied now that by allowing this behavior into the culture, that you've corrupted it, right? Because if it's unnatural, it's like if you've got an unnatural substance in your body that's going to poison you. Like there, it is such an ugly thing to say that it people get murdered for it. Yeah, it's it's the the consequences are very very tangible, and yeah, you're right. It it goes way beyond the food stuff. It becomes something that uh, people try to basically police each other with. Because a lot of these terms, I, I think we we touched on before how they sort of end a conversation or end a discussion. It's a word that you can just crush the other person's ideas with. But then it goes beyond talk with some of this stuff, doesn't it? It it turns into action. And I think this is why, like, when gay marriage finally went to court, it was such an eye-opener for people. Because in court, you're not allowed to do this. 
and yeah. court, you're forced <laughs> to actually give some data. So when they were saying, well, you know, it's you, it's it's just natural. And in court, they're saying, okay, so when you say it's natural or traditional, you're what you're really saying is we've always done it this way. But you could have said the same thing about slavery. You could have said the same thing about prohibitions on interracial marriage, and they did. Oh, and they sure. did say that about slavery. All of those things were defended with it's natural. It, it's always been this way. It's natural for one type of person to own another type of person. They were they are natural slaves. And that may be one of the ugliest and most abused words throughout history. Because, again, what it really means is I, a powerful person, want to preserve my power in the culture, and it is natural for me to be in power, by which I mean I am in power and do not wish to stop being in power. I do not wish to give up any element of this power. I, I like to be able to tell people who they can marry. I like to be able to tell people you know, who they can have sex with, how they can have sex. I like being able to tell them that any sex act that is not, you know, penis and vagina is unnatural. Anything that's oral is unnatural. Like, we're going to exert this control. But when it came time to in court, when they had to nail down evidence, evidence that gay marriage was harmful, that it would be harmful to society, to the people engaging in it, to children, adopted children, they had nothing. They had no data. They had no studies. And after all this time, thousands of years of using the term natural and people just accepting it when someone was finally pinned down and forced to justify the usage of the word they couldn't that's such a perfect example of it too and and also as far as natural being a critical word like i don't know if people realize how load-bearing it is in our courts and in our laws and in our especially american society that we've put together because i mean if you look at uh, somebody like John Locke, he would describe rights as natural. That was the that was the descriptive term for them for one of the key people determining the overall idea of, you know, human liberty and stuff. So we should be a lot more careful with throwing natural at, I don't know, sexual practices that we're creeped out by if we are. Because that's important. That, that changes people's lives. Again, I, I don't, I have a certain bias. I don't want to, I will tend to use negative examples in a certain direction, but Everyone relies on these. Everyone does. And I think it is important if you want to be the type of person who thinks carefully about subjects and believes like strongly in things, you want to be able to convince other people of them. You've got to be able to explain it beyond what's natural. For instance, you know, if you're against polygamy, you're against, a, a, you know, a guy being able to marry five women you don't want to be relying on, well, it's it's just it's natural for men and women to pair up. It's unnatural. Like you need to be able to say, well, actually, in societies where they have that, it's always basically turned into like a form of human trafficking. The women basically right. get accumulated and sold it, it, it. You with it always comes like underage marriage. Like there's a lot of other reasons why we oppose it. But for anything any, you know, and we're going to have these debates too as time goes on in the future when you start talking about cloning, talk about, you know, ge like genetic oh. engineering. Yeah. There will be a lot of discussion about, well, this is not natural, it's particularly very, very soon when wealthy people can pay to make their kids smarter. When we get, you've got a set of however many thousands of genes that govern intelligence, things like that. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to 
pay to edit in some additional smarts for my kid. And I think there will be a lot of complaint that that's, well, that's unnatural. That's not, and there we're going to get to have the discussion of, okay, well, is medicine unnatural? Because, you know, is surgery unnatural? What type of interfering with the human organism is the natural way? And what type is wrong or playing God or whatever loaded phrase you want to use? And again, you are instead going to have to justify harm, a belief in that there's a harm to prey on the fact that people tend to be scared of what's new, right? Right. And that's why, you know, to a lot of people in middle America, the idea of a trans person, they think it's new. Like they think these people just showed up like, oh, there's this new fad when there's all these trans people around. It's like, no, they've, they've always been there. It's just now slightly more of them can tell you that like you didn't know they were trans before like that's all that happened but to them and everyone who opposes it they will intentionally try to frame it as if it's new and that's what's built into the word you know traditional natural real It, it, it it's all like well things were going fine and they're trying to to change it and we will do that too uh, they already have a way to grow meat that is not attached to an animal. They can extract uh, some muscle tissue and then cause those cells to just grow on their own. You can, and there's no, they're not attached to an actual pig. They're not feeling pain. So they can grow the meat in a lab and turn it into a hamburger that exists right now. You could, you, the only reason you can't go buy it right now is it costs like a hundred thousand dollars to make a pound of hamburger, but that will be on the menu in our lifetimes and we will be weirded out by it. <laughs> and when it comes time to have the discussion, like, well, okay, is it still vegan? Cause no animal suffered. Like they extracted right. from cells from a pig that died a long time ago. No animal suffered. This was all meat that was growing in a vat. They will use loaded language. Like, Oh, this is Frankenstein. This is a Frankenstein creation. This is an unnatural grown in a lab. Like they will use all those terms to bias you against it. But in reality, they're not saying anything about that substance. They're only saying, I think this is weird, but they will not phrase it as, I think this is weird. They will phrase it as this is Franken food. This is mad science. It's a perfect example of what kind of practices this loaded language can kind of Trojan horse through. Because like if you're saying this meat that was grown in a lab is unnatural, you're basically demanding that an animal needed to suffer just to make you feel better. But it, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like you're sticking up for... I don't know, tradition or history or, or the average farmer or something. And I eat meat. I'm not like even uh, uh, completely opposed to animal suffering to feed me. I'm just amazed that that one word can sneak through an insistence that animals suffer that may be technologically completely unnecessary pretty soon. It's a way to enforce a certain type of behavior or to enforce a certain type of values, I guess. And the next bunch we're going to get into... yeah. It's basically most insults you hear are <laughs> it's it's terms that induce shame in the listener if they describe you as this thing or at least they're designed to without again like explaining why it's it's wrong to be that thing in the same way that if we said someone is not a real man whether or not that's even a bad thing 
to not be a real man by how they define it completely gets skipped. So we've got a bunch that you'll see and headlines elsewhere. And again, this is not exclusive to any one group or side of the political equation. These are almost universal. And I think first one here we've got is millennial, which it's it's very like uh, city people aren't real people to me. Like, I don't know how someone would not be a millennial if the textbook definition is just when they were born. Like, you're pretty stuck. But there's all kinds of pieces that sort of imply that millennials are either lazy or not trying hard enough or destabilizing the good things we used to have. Right. And this is like many, many insult words. It's a word that had a definition once upon a time. Like yeah. it once it used to refer to a specific demographic group, but born roughly between these years and these years that now it's such a broad range. I think somebody said that if you're 38 years old, you're still a millennial. It, <laughs> at some point, it became a buzzword. It, it, it transmogrified to where it's now, it, it's sort of like a derisive thing. When you say like talking about millennials not getting jobs or like the type of foods millennial eat, or you'll someone will derisively talk about like, oh yeah, it's that like the avocado toast thing that was used by some guy to insult millennials. And there it wasn't referring to a specific demographic group at all. It was referring to a specific personality type that they seem to imply had rejected like the accepted paths to success that was probably living at home or living in some other insecure situation that did not have a traditional career, um, but rather was taking like working part-time or working like side gigs or things like that, that was very like fussy and what they will eat, like wouldn't be happy eating a hamburger. They've got to eat like a a soy burger with like sprouts on it. It's like a series of affectations yeah. that is similar to the next one on the list, which is hipster, which I think they often use interchangeably, but it became this derisive thing where if you say, Oh, it's that thing millennials are doing now. They usually don't mean it in a good way, unless it's just a marketing person who's trying to identify like, well, what do millennials want to eat? But it really right. refers to them as like this, group of aliens i think millennials it, it comes off initially as sort of a an innocent one probably you think like oh you know they just get called millennials they can take it but i think on some level it's trojan horsing through an idea of we don't need to ask about how the economic conditions we have now came about and how that impacts young people we can just write up these fun pieces about how young people are are too feckless to get a job like they're too busy buying pop culture t-shirts to start a life and try to buy a house it, they're just silly that's all we need to think about we don't need to ask like say whether one generation screwed over another which is i don't know an important question uh, we just throw millennial or hipster at people. And, and that's uh, tricky. That's, that's the language pulling a real prank on us. Not only that, but even if you're trying to be sympathetic to the things you're talking about, it still is painting an entire generation with a broad brush. If yeah, you've got sure. some guy who's 25 years old, who graduated from college early, who got into Harvard and is, has you know, graduated and is now starting at 
a law firm and is like the youngest member of the firm or whatever, like they like somebody on this really hard charging path. Right. If you refer to them as a millennial, we they would like laugh at you or someone would laugh at you like, well, no, that's not a millennial. By millennial, I mean two girls who live in New York. One works at a coffee shop. The other works as an Uber driver and they're scraping to get by. It's like, okay, so you're saying the millennial actually doesn't refer to an age group. You're saying it refers to a certain economic, like socioeconomic group and a certain series of attitudes that if you've got somebody who works 100 hours a week and has started their own business at age 23, or you're saying that's not a millennial, or if you're talking about some guy who graduated from high school and went to work in a coal mine and works 12 hour days in a coal mine, if you looked at that person, that person coming out of the mine just covered in coal dust like, ah, look, there's another millennial. <laughs> that sounds like nonsense because <laughs> right. that, you, you see what I'm saying? It, it paints a specific picture in your mind that is not bundled into the word because the word was just supposed to mean a certain age group that has a specific set of like challenges that are maybe different from earlier generations. This is one thing that's weird about being on Twitter. If you only saw the world through my Twitter feed, you would assume that everyone in the millennial age group is A, working part-time or unemployed. B, they make a lot of their income off of some sort of freelance or gig work. C, they are constantly anxious and suffer from depression. And D, they either have been in an improv group yeah. or they've been to a lot of improv shows. Like they can make a joke about, <laughs> oh, it's another bad improv troupe. Ha <laughs> And everyone on my Twitter will be like, yeah, I know, right? Okay, here's the news. The vast majority of the world has not ever been, doesn't know what an improv troupe is. This is a bubble of people who live in certain cities in a certain industry who are aspiring to a certain thing. That's not, that's not the world. That's just Twitter. That's right. <laughs> so even if he went down and broke down the statistics, like what percentage of millennials are working full time, what percentage of them did graduate college and did get into a good job in their field? Well, considering that we're counting everyone up to people in their mid thirties as millennials, once you get to a certain age group that are still categorically millennials, they actually have high rates of home ownership, for instance. They delay buying homes, but they do eventually buy homes. But if you see a guy mowing his lawn, he's got a two-story house and two kids and a white picket fence, and you say, oh, look, there's another millennial mowing his lawn, it sounds ridiculous, even though, by the dictionary definition, it's true. Yeah, I keep I keep running into that with um, my favorite athletes being my age or a little bit younger. Like, I, I don't look at Boston Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale, who has a family, too, and be like, ah, look at that millennial. But uh, according to the definition, I guess we're both millennials. It's weird. So, again, you have a term that people will use that has no definition. I guess the word hipster is not used as much as it was even like three years ago. But there was a time where it was very much the same thing. Like, hipster def was a specific subculture. It was a specific style of dress, a specific type of music, a specific preference for like craft beer or whatever that eventually just became everything I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> like literally anything that is, I find that I don't like, like anything in a city that's gentrification, anything like that became hipster. Oh, it's one of those hipster coffee shops, one of those hipster restaurant restaurants. It's one of those hipster uh, dogs that they, they have. 
to where uh, kind of in the same way, it, it, it became just a word that means I don't like this thing. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like it also sort of became code for the previous code of real man. Like I know just among fellow men, like there, there was all, there's all kinds of like, what a hipster guy over there. And it basically just means that guy is not as masculine as the speaker feels they should be. Right. And referring to things like skinny jeans or some sort of headwear or something about like their affectation or their diet, the fact that they tend to be vegetarian or vegan, that they're doing things that they, to circle back, would say is not the actions of a real man. But here's the news. If The things that a man does, a lot of those affectations from driving the big truck to having big muscles to whatever, if those are, as they are, mating strategies, well, guess what, dude? There are some neighborhoods in which looking like that hipster is what gets you the girls. Like, that also is a mating strategy. Right. It doesn't conform to what may work in your neighborhood or in your circle of in your social circle. But all of these things, including if you go to a club at two in the morning and there's people walking out and they're all high on ecstasy and the guy, you know, is wearing like leather pants and and like a fishnet shirt and some ridiculous wig. It's like in that social circle that's a very good mating strategy. If the goal is to, if you're what you're calling a real man being the thing that woos ladies, because again, real man always means heterosexual to them. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, guess what? If you go back and watch like music videos from the 80s, you watch like Poison and the way they dress with the teased hair and they're all wearing lipstick. Those guys were having a lot of sex. So now knowing that, but you're saying, well, they're not dressed like they're dressing like a lady. They're not dressing like a real man. It's like at this point, I'm totally lost as to what that means, because they're also there were a lot of cocaine orgies in their life. Are you saying they were having too much sex that a man knows when to hold back? Because that's certainly not the way I heard it from the real man type people. So it's kind of the same thing here. It's like all you're doing is projecting a series of things that are objectively affectations on your part. The flannel shirt, the trucker hat, those are affectations. All you're doing is saying that your affectations are annoying and mine are how a true person dresses. When in reality, we're all wearing costumes. <laughs> like, like I realize the hipster <laughs> outfit looks like a costume to you because you're not from that neighborhood or you're not from that background. But I assure you that you are wearing a costume just as much as you have an accent, but you don't think you have an accent. You would never, most people would not refer to their own accent unless they've been hearing it their whole lives, but you have one. Yeah. And it's just there and it's the way it is. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the rejection of hipster is like, oh, it's not traditional, but it, uh, the term, as far as people can tell, originally comes from a 1940s term. And not only is it somewhat similar to the 1940s meaning, because the, the 1940s one meant a lot of things, um, mainly liking jazz a lot, because, uh, you know, the 1940s, uh, but also adopting the lifestyle of jazz musicians or urban people or even living in a kind of what we'd call a gentrifying neighborhood now. 
but hipster now and hipster then both meant dressing in a way and acting in a way that will, among other things, get you laid. Like not, not only is hipster somewhat traditional, but it's traditional for what you could call being a real man if it if it comes down to getting laid a lot. As far as insults where we kind of type people, we've also got the idea here of something being childish. And I think similar to millennial, that uh, paints a really, really broad brush in terms of what a group of people are like, because newsflash for people who I guess have never met children, but they're not all the same. Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of kids and young people and we just throw around childish as an automatic bad thing in a way that is really weird, if you think about it. Right, because if you isolate it down to an individual behavior, like if someone throws a temper tantrum or they start throwing things around their office and it's like, well, that's, you know, he's, he's behaving like a child. It's like, I agree that behavior is bad, but I've seen like most adults fly into a rage more often than most children I know. Like, I wish it was something we left behind. But, you know, if you're trying to say, well, you should do a better job of governing your emotions or something like that, that's fine. But you've got to explain it because it's not as simple as saying, well, he's acting like a child or she's acting like a child. That, again, only says, I personally do not approve of the way you're behaving. But trying to narrow it down to, are you dressing like a child? Like, am I wearing tiny clothes? Am I eating like a child? <laughs> like, 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 what are these things you're asking me to leave behind that? Because I'm sure there's some cases that it's justified, but if I'm eating food and you're saying, well, it's like something you need to eat like a grown up because I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm eating something, some weird combination of food or something that's similar to what a kid, kid would eat. Right. Explain why it's bad. Explain why your thing is sophisticated and mine's not. Because that's what ultimately it means. You're acting in a way that's not mature or sophisticated. It's like, okay, yeah, but aside from my body getting larger and from, you know, most of my habits becoming like more self-sufficient outside of that, what do you mean? If people still don't know what we mean here, when I was young, video games were something children played. And now yeah. the average video game player is in their mid 30s. And we don't even think about it. Like the idea that, that my, you know, of my grandma or someone sitting down with their phone and playing Candy Crush is not weird. We wouldn't treat that the same as if they. I can't even think of a good childish behavior that would be so obvious slept in a crib. <laughs> right. I, it, it, like, it, but it was that when I was younger, it was a kid's, it was a kid's toy and that, you know, it was some, a toy you played with. And just as you give up toys, as you get older, you'd give up your video games. And at some point through sheer marketing, video game companies, you know, mainly by making the game consoles look more like just normal audio visual equipment, where like, you know, a, a Nintendo used to be kind of a colorful thing, like a GameCube was like purple usually, and, and it looked yeah. like something, it's like made of plastic, and it's like something a kid would, would use, whereas a PlayStation 4 just sits next to a DVD player or, or a receiver just on your shelf, and it looks like another piece of electronics that a grown-up would own. And it certainly costs an amount of money like something a grown-up would have, but that's a great example of something where purely through the power of marketing, whereas now if I, if I sit here at my age and play with action figures, people would think that was weird or dolls. 
But right. if I play a video game, it's not weird at all. And that was a marketing thing. So here's where something that was supposed to be a cultural norm, purely due to companies wanting to make some more money, <laughs> they just changed it. It's like, no, you know what? We've actually decided everybody can play games. This is a, We even have games that are for adults only. Games that are full of, of nudity and cursing and adult themes. And to where you would say, oh, this is not... I would not let a child play this video game. I'm telling anyone who would listen. If in 1985 or 86 someone had said the phrase, this video game is not for children, it would have sounded weird. Yeah, actually, I'm realizing the same thing kind of happens over time with cartoons. Like, not only are many cartoons and animated things seen as art now, but even past stuff will be appreciated, I think, for being great. But, like, now the work of Chuck Jones is, ah, the the finest animation there is. And then uh, a few generations ago, it was like, ah, yeah, put the kids in front of Bugs Bunny. They'll just kind of look at it because it's a dumb thing for kids. But we all decided now it's for everybody uh, possibly because there's more money in it. Uh, correct. And that is another fantastic example. Whereas once upon a time, if you saw someone watching cartoons, it was they were acting like a child. That was a childish, you need to mature and grow up and watch shows that a grown-up watches. Whereas now you have cartoons that are about depression. They're about things that a kid wouldn't get. Like a kid can watch BoJack Horseman because there's a lot of like visual sight gags, things like that. But they're not going to understand the themes and stuff until they're much, much older because there are not that many 10 year olds who understand like regret of right. <laughs> having feeling like you have squandered your, your potential. Those are things you have different angst when you're 10. I'm not saying you don't have angst, you have different angst. And so a lot of the things that the big talking horse is going through will not mean anything to a child. But once upon a time, the idea of doing a cartoon that was purely, that was only for like people who have been old enough to have that kind of like crisis of, of faith in your own life, it would have been a nonsense thing. Because cartoons were mostly for kids. Yeah, like you said, you would pop the kid in front of the TV on Saturday morning, and that was something to keep them distracted for a few hours. Right. It was. We would treat it like it's just lights and colors or something. Like it. Like it doesn't even have a script or a story. And uh, and now it's it's like you say the the finest stuff. I also with that insult of childish. At the same time, it's being used to call something wrong or dumb or silly. Uh, it also gets used to kind of imply that adults all have it together. I I feel like there's a fallacy out there that people gain more maturity and become more complete just by getting older when in actuality, there's a lot of pretty conscious work you have to do there. And so that childish insult sort of sweeps that under the rug and sticks to the more basic and I think incorrect idea where, oh, you know, just once somebody's older, they're more put together. Like once they're 18, they should get to see these movies and they can sign up for the army and everything else. And before that, they can't, which is crazy. It's basically saying at that age, you're supposed to stop enjoying certain things and to start enjoying other things. Here's a good example. There have been some good think pieces recently about how once upon a time blockbuster movies, you you could actually, you know, it would be something like The Godfather. It would be like a three hour long Epic, and that would be the number one grossing movie of the year. Where, if you look at the box office now, it's 10 superhero movies, and they are all written for an age group that's like around age 13. Like, they're, they're fairly simple morality tales with a lot of action and things like that. And where they do touch on an emotional core or whatever, it tends to be on a 
fairly simple level. So when you criticize movies like that or like blockbuster movies, that's a common thing saying that, well, you know what? We are grownups. We shouldn't still be watching superhero movies like that. You should have mature to where you're watching movies that are about more mature subjects or that take on like things that are more about emotions or relationships. There's a valid argument there about popular culture as a whole find you know they kind of collectively figured out that you make more money if you're aiming your stuff at teenagers but on the other hand if i'm watching that just as escapism because i'm extremely busy during my job of you know if i'm working at a hospital and i watch people die every day and so i just want to watch right. the incredible hulk punch a bad guy through a building I think it's very valid that that person, they get enough real angst in their day-to-day life, and they when they want to watch a movie, they just want to watch you know a series of, of CGI monsters uh, explode. You could have an in-depth discussion about what's a healthy type of pop culture to consume or what is a mature or immature type of pop culture to, to consume. But you will never have it if you're just stopping at these are movies for teenagers. You should you should have gotten past this by now as if there's a roadmap of here's the type of content you should consume as a child. Here's what you should consume as a teen. Here's what you should be consuming in your 30s. Here's the type of thing you should like in your 50s. Because I kind of felt like that's what I was told most of my life, that when you get to be a 60-year-old man, you will either be a sophisticated type who like sits in a chair and smokes a pipe and like reads books or the newspaper or something, or you'll be a guy who just is like in his underwear sitting in a recliner watching a Red Sox game. But you certainly, you certainly <laughs> in neither case will still be reading comic books, for instance, right? Because that was something right. else that I was told was for children. But that's a good example of where calling it childish, calling it immature, it's only there to just say you disapprove of the thing they enjoy. And as <laughs> yeah. such, it's kind of useless. Like in terms of in language, it's it's kind of useless because is that something we should be policing. Yeah. So much of this language comes down to behavior modification. And I'm starting to feel like it's the kind of behavior modification we all accept the most. Like like we basically never like having that done to us if we know about it and if we're thinking about it. I mean, the, the country was borderline founded on not being told what to do. And then we also just accept all these sneaky words and language that tweak what we're doing and how we're living. Another one on the list of insults that I alluded to very briefly, which is like all of the gender based things, like if a guy is not being manly enough, calling him a pussy or saying, grow some balls or show some balls or something like you like tying courage to balls somehow. And then the converse of it, where it's like telling a woman, you need to act like a lady by which they mean clean up, wear a certain type of clothes be quiet, don't curse. In both of you, like where you're enforcing gender roles, not by saying you're being disgusting or you're being abrasive, but rather saying you're not acting like a lady. You're not acting like a man. 
where yeah. again they have slipped into the conversation a million assumptions about how a gender is supposed to behave and whether or not those are good ways for a gender to behave without debate. They simply are saying you have deviated from the rules. You are betraying your own biology. Like you have testicles, but you are not acting like you do, which is a <laughs> an objectively nonsense phrase because right. it, it is used to talk people into doing all sorts of like it typically means you need to be physically aggressive. You need to not compromise. You need to go punch this guy in a bar because he he bumped into you and it spilled his drink. If you have testicles, you need to fight that person in this bar and then both of you go to jail. If you don't do that, it means you don't have testicles, even though you do, but you are betraying <laughs> your testicles somehow. <laughs> it, like, like, if you try They're to. They're both very upset, yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to break down the logic behind it, it falls apart so hard. But right now, at this moment, there are thousands and thousands of men in locker rooms and in high schools and in hallways saying, show some balls. And it, it is understood by the listener what they mean. And if you tell the, the person, you know, ah, he doesn't have any balls, they take it personally and they will fight you because that is an insult, even though the thing they have said is total nonsense. I, I like that example in so many ways, but especially because almost anytime you're told to grow some balls or have balls, they're trying to get you to do something that in a literal sense risks your very sensitive balls. It's even better than that, because if the listener had the true confidence that comes with what we talk about being true, like masculinity, which to me means like courage, responsibility, confidence. If you were self-assured, that insult would bounce right off of you. Oh, yeah, right. Because yeah. you would be in the <laughs> same way that, that a guy who's willing to wear a pink shirt, he can do it because it's like, I'm not, I'm not worried that you think I'm not a real man. I don't, your definition of what's a real man is all meaningless affectations. You think that a real man eats bacon, a real man eats steak and not and not what not a salad. It's like I know I'm confident enough in my masculinity to know that those things anyone can eat a steak. Anyone can <laughs> eat some bacon. That's not an achievement. Anyone can buy a gun. Even people who shouldn't be able to. Anyone could could get you know, when choosing a vehicle to buy, could get a very large truck. It does not take anything, any special courage or physical strength or anything else to do those things. I know that you are the things you're calling out as being what a real man does are largely meaningless and are just based on specific preferences that honestly have been sold to you by companies. A great example, the fact that I grew up learning that boys don't cry and the men don't cry. The crying is a thing that women do. People seem shocked to find out that is a very recent invention. That in classic literature, the manly warriors would cry on the battlefield or would write a poem about the battle and cry while they wrote it or would cry about, you know, coming home and their wife doesn't love them. That yeah. the idea of that being an exclusively feminine thing only goes back to like the 1800s. It, it was like a specific like Victorian era England type 
thing. It, it is not ancient. There's nothing in the Bible about how men shall not cry. And in fact, it's the opposite. The men in the Bible cry all the time. But yeah. the idea that this is betraying your gender, your biology, the the you know the the entire concept of hum, humanity going back you know millions of years is ludicrous. You're taking yeah, something of, that you have a preference for right now, and you're trying to project it backward. Yeah, I remember. I think most of Homer is guys crying about their extremely close male friend being killed. Right? Like that's that's one of the foundational Western texts, if we're going to call anything Western. And uh, much like the Bible, it's a lot of men emoting. It's it's very it's it's a lot of crying. Uh, yeah. Or anytime we see like an old book where it's like several men sleeping in the same bed or one man helping another man dress. And it's like, haha, they were gay. You know, I bet Sam and Frodo were gay in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's like, well, no. See, back then, a man could actually touch another man without being accused of being gay. They were not so terrified of having their masculinity questioned that, you know, it's like, well, these men were bathing nude together. They probably all had an orgy. It's like, no, see, what it means to see another man naked, it was meant something different back then. There were gay people back then, but the idea that you're like, this is probably like a coded gay relationship because the, it shows them crying together. Two men crying together. What could be gayer than that? You're talking about a specific signifiers of masculinity and heterosexuality that are very recent and that once upon a time that's it it you don't have to go back very far before you find out that your ideas you're the weird one like like your right. weird superstitions against proximity against touching other men things like that that's recent and it's dumb. It, and it's not even like a religious thing. Like so much of it is just based on the culture. It's based on like rebelling against hippie culture. But you would be surprised how recent it is. All of this stuff is. That's why they, there's um, the old photos of Teddy Roosevelt as a toddler. And he's like wearing a dress. Oh, sure. It's like, yeah. what's going on there? It's like, well, they didn't back then. They didn't care. They just all wore dresses like all the toddlers did. Like the idea now that if someone sold a dress for toddlers, there would be such outrage on the right. of like, oh, it's the liberals trying to you know destroy traditional masculinity and trying to confuse children. Man, if you want to talk about gender confusion and dress, go back just look at old paintings at how people were dressed in old paintings. It's like that wasn't a costume party. The, the right. things that you think <laughs> of as being the way that, you know, that a real man dresses, like those were things that didn't exist 200 years ago. That was very tangible for me when I visited uh, Ernest Hemingway's childhood home, which is in Oak Park, Illinois. And it's it's a recent enough place that it's still standing and they show you a bunch of pictures of him having, as a little kid, wearing a dress and having what we'd consider a lady's haircut because it was a Victorian thing that his parents were into of raising him as if he was his sister's, uh, like, sister. It was just like this thing they did. And then he probably in many ways tried to reject that the whole rest of his life by going to bullfights. But there was a lot looser of a conception of this stuff pretty recently 
And if you're building your entire argument for how kids should be raised on some sort of tradition, it should probably relate to uh, what traditions were, you know? And the traditional way to raise children is that you would have like 12 children and like eight of them would die in childhood. That's how that's the traditional way. If you want to truly go all the way back where you just had as many as is possible. And then like most of them would die of typhoid fever or whatever. Like if I tell you that you can go back to a certain distance in history and the concept of like owning private property goes away, that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. It's like, well, yeah, but who owned the land? It's like, well, they didn't have that yet. They didn't know what that was. (laughs) That's something that's hard for us to do. That's reflected in language. Is it it? We want to believe that the world is very tangible, that there are these ideas that we can cling to and that they are true and they've always been true. It's also amazing because not only are we bad at shaping language in a way to, I guess, insult each other properly or criticize each other in a constructive way. You also picked out a lot here, Jason, of how we're bad at compliments. Like we, I think it's astounding that even when we're trying to be nice to each other, we can also imply really weird stuff. Well, and because it works the same way as putting natural on your label, you're not putting that to make your food seem better. You're doing that to make your competitor seem worse. Right. That word is only there to imply the competing products are unnatural. So like, for instance, people love to talk about they met a celebrity and, you know, she's really just down to earth. She's really genuine. And if you pin them down and ask them what they mean by that, it is very hard to nail it down because they may say like she, like she just acted like an ordinary person. Like, like she acted like she didn't think she was anything special. You know, I I met Taylor Swift and she was very, like she said, please. And thank you. And you know, it's like, Oh, so you mean like she was polite. Why didn't you just say that? Right. What, what do you mean down there? And it's like, well, but you know, like she's not stuck up or thinks she's too good. It's like, yeah, but like she has a higher social status than you do. She is wealthier and and according to social norms, more attractive and according to social norms, more talented than you. She has a higher social status. So are you saying that she pretended to have a lower status as to not make you feel bad? Because that's an act of dishonesty. <laughs> yeah. The, the fact is, Taylor <laughs> Swift could have you killed and would not go to jail for it. And she knows it. <laughs> she, she could buy and sell you a million times over and feel nothing. She could have your entire town bulldozed and have like a giant mansion in the shape of her head built there. It, she knows that. But you're saying because she puts on an affectation of acting like, oh, I'm just like you. When the truth is, you're, you're not. Like, she could do without you. As a fan, you could die tomorrow, and she would feel like it would not affect her life at all. With celebrities, it feels like down-to-earth basically just means they sat and talked to me without being ludicrously rude or mean. You know, like, I, I almost, I want one of these profiles where they aren't down-to-earth, and they, like, use the reporter as a footstool or something. That'd be great. <laughs> I think my complaint with that is that the times when you see the opposite, when you see some celebrity who is acting very arrogant or acting very stuck up, it's like, no, they were acting like they had an incredibly busy schedule and they have a million things like their schedule is planned out to the minute. 
Right. And the reason they didn't stop and talk to you and listen to you tell them about, oh, my gosh, I loved you in Transformers 6 and, oh, I've watched your movie. The reason they weren't willing to sit down and have a beer with you is because they have a an orbit of publicists and managers and agents and people who are, who have them down to, you have to be here at eight 15 here at eight 30 here at eight 45. And if you've caught them at the end of that day, if they were very brusque, if they were acting entitled, like demanding, like, Hey, you told me this food would be here and the food's not here. There's a really good chance they were acting like that because that food not being there throws off their schedule for the rest of the day. Like what you see as like them being like an egomaniac or, oh, he thinks he's so great. No, he was objectively conveying the fact that he's busier than you are, that there is more (laughs) money at stake with his his time is more valuable than yours. You know, you're off work. You're there. You've met a celebrity. This is like the biggest thing that's happened to you all year. But to him. He has other people waiting on him, and if he's late to this meeting, it costs other people money. With when we talk about down to earth or genuine or or other compliments for that, that also doesn't get complimented universally because we've also got here the the phrase people say of he tells it like it is, which is someone not being down to earth at all, and that gets held up as a standard of like good job by this person, usually a man. Uh, for being honest, right? What a great thing. When a lot of times they're just kind of being thoughtless or even pushing people around and then trying to justify it with a phrase that we've put a positive value on. Pundits love this, like any kind of bomb throwing pundit where they just say like the most outrageous thing or anybody who's like an abrasive jerk, like they will boast that, well, I'm just telling the truth. But it's like, yeah, but you are specifically choosing what truth to tell in such a way as it will be the most upsetting. You know, you come to see someone's baby and they've just had, you know, and you say, well, you know, you know, this baby, this child, too, will die someday. (laughs) Like that's objectively true. But you weren't just telling it like it is. The phrase, the quote that I've heard, and I cannot find the origin of it, which is that people who brag about being brutally honest usually prefer the brutality over the honesty. They <laughs> they enjoy the power of knowing exactly what true statement will hurt someone the most. And so they carefully select it. But then they will say they just tell it like it is or they're frank or whatever positive term we use. It's the term that implies that it's a version of real because it implies that everyone who's being polite is lying. Right. That it's an affectation to compliment someone on their shirt or that it's an affectation to not tell someone that they're fat. It's like, well, they're objectively obese. If you don't immediately yell that in their face, then that's phony because you're not bringing that truth to the forefront as if that's automatically something to be to be proud of that you don't have the ability to filter yourself according to you know some rules of society with a lot of these i feel like also you can examine them by thinking through what just a synonym for it would be you know and the phrase he tells it like it is is essentially equal to he always tells the truth which is he's always right 
which it was just pretty, if someone came up to you and, and said, I tell it like it is in our culture, we're like, oh yeah, cool. But if they said a very similar thing of I'm always right, you would think they're a maniac. You'd think that's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> it um, implies courage too, right? Like I'm saying, oh, even, yeah. like pundits will even say this. I'm saying what the, the truth that everyone else is afraid of. Right. You know, my my racism is really just me, me <laughs> telling it like it is because other people will not admit that other races are, are inferior. But I'm the lone courageous speaker who will stand up for and yeah. they always mean it as something <laughs> negative, like telling it like it is, is never wishing someone a happy birthday like it is your birthday i'm telling it like it is like it's always especially i guess people in my age group like we we want to boast about how cynical we are so whenever there's like some war or something and it's like well that's real life you know like that's how i'm glad there's someone showing us what the world is really like it's like well why is that real but a bunch of people having fun at a barbecue fake like why is that also why is that not right. an example of this is what the world is really like no one would ever phrase it that way no one would ever look at like a child's birthday party and it's like ah now there's what the world's really like let me show you it's like <laughs> you would think they were crazy it's only when they're viewing like a dead body in an alley it, but, but there's like this bias toward well this is more real than it's like well that's not true the average person is not lying dead in an alley their truth is just it's the truth that upsets you that's the only real truth the truth that makes you feel better well, that's just something somebody made up yeah. most of the terminology we use in politics falls into this category and sure. may in fact be the most important version of this if i am looking at a politician and i say if that politician is a member of the republican party and I say he is a Republican. I have stated something about the politician. I have stated the party that they are officially a member of. It's listed on the ballot. If I say that that politician is a criminal, if they have committed a crime and that's been proven, then I'm I'm describing the politician. If it is, if I am alleging that they've committed a crime but it's not been proven, then I'm making an accusation against them even though it sounds like I'm simply using an adjective to describe them, right? Yeah, right. If I say this politician is a fascist, if they are not running under the fascist party, I have a huge amount of justification I need to go through to justify using that term. Because right. once again, I use that word the same way that I use the word Republican. I use it to describe their positions. It may be that this person is a closeted fascist. That may factually turn out to be true, but it is a tremendous amount of investigating that it would take to actually find that <laughs> out because fascist, like almost every other word in politics, like liberal, neoliberal, all of them is such a nebulous word that it effectively now has no definition. It certainly does not stand for a set and concrete list of beliefs. Let me get this straight. Are you telling me that when people go on Twitter and call somebody a fascist, they do not also link to their doctoral dissertation on 1930s Italy and Germany? They just kind of say it? They just do that online? Yeah. It is a word <laughs> that describes how they feel about a politician. Because if you want to say they're a racist, just say, say that. Everybody knows that term. 
if you want to yeah. say that their policy that they're a scaremonger say that you know if, if people know what that means but when you say fascist and you want us to think of hitler and you want like that chill to run up our spine the problem is we already have lots of terms that mean bad politician right if you water it down to the point that that's all that's left of it it just means evil i think that is disastrous for political discourse like the word liberal like that's a slur on the right like i i remember throughout the 2016 campaign hillary clinton being called some kind of crazed liberal when there were at the same time many democrats who were like this person is far too conservative for me and and it's a weird thing where that just gets thrown at basically anybody who's not a Republican all the time, uh, I think for decades now. And it's just it's just like wallpaper to me. I don't even hear it now. If they want to go extra hard, they would say that her policies are socialist and use oh, yeah. the word socialist as an adjective. And among the right, that that doesn't mean Sweden. That means Venezuela or the Soviet Union. Right. Well, if you ask them to like. Like, which of these programs are socialist and which ones are just, do you think, are wasteful? Because if it's just, if you think she's for government waste, why not just say that? But that doesn't mean the same thing as saying socialist. Like, that's a word that scares people on the right. Just as the word fascist scares, should scare everyone. Right. Like, because we, you know, World War II. <laughs> but it's a word that is detached from any definition. And it becomes, again, just a talisman where it's like, we don't need to discuss any of the details. We don't need to get into whether or not Obamacare will work. We just need to call it socialist. And that's the end of the discussion. Like, whether yeah. or not it will actually result in us spending less money is not that's not an issue because we have this word we can attach to it that that's the end of the debate. Once we attach that label, we don't need to talk about it anymore. We don't need to go point by point. With socialist in particular, I feel like that word in the last couple of years is going through a really interesting shift where, like you say, people on the right were using it just to shut down debate. But now in the last couple of years, there are a few prominent Democrats who are comfortable with saying they're socialists and being called that, they use the insult in such a basic and meaningless way. It is almost an advertisement now. It's almost like, go look at this socialist. And some people are like, okay, you know? <laughs> so there's there's kind of a double-edged blade too to people misusing these words where it, it uh, stops working if it just becomes a thing that's fine. Correct, because... If you then ask the average person, okay, well, does she, when she says, if she's running as a socialist or as a democratic socialist, is she advocating for a more robust, like welfare state, like better retirement programs and universal health care? Or is she wanting to use the military to roll in with tanks and seize all private property right. and redistribute it? <laughs> People who want to scaremonger on the right can simply effortlessly switch to, oh, so like, you know, the thing that people escaped in the Soviet Union where people had a farm and then the government came with machine guns and said, this is now the government's farm and you're now, 
you just work on it. You know, because they can they can point to examples where that sort of thing led to starvation because it yeah. turns out there's not as much motivation to grow the food if the government is just going to show up with AK-47s and then take what you grew. Right. But that is not what she's running on. It would actually be hard to win an election in America running on that. But the definition of the word socialist is so loose that when you attach it as a label to someone, you have not informed the listener as to that person's positions at all. Right. If, if their positions can be anywhere in between, I would like universal health care and I would like the government to seize everyone's homes, then you have not gotten them any closer to understand. And if anything, you've made them dumber because you've attached a label that may mean something to them that it doesn't mean to that politician. And that is similar to my problems with the word fascist, because you can use many adjectives about Donald Trump because this was actually a Trump episode <laughs> the whole time. We got to get that we, out of I have written, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have written many thousands of words describing in detail many things about him. But if you want to boil him down to the word fascist, you have to understand 10 people in a room, if you surveyed them and asked them to write a definition of the word fascist, there would be no two people writing the same definition. So then why is it useful as a word unless your goal is only to manipulate? Well, yeah, especially because there are parallels you can draw, but then it just takes more effort than that. Like you can specifically say he tried to make the media an enemy uh, of his base and this matches X, Y, and Z fascist dictator. But then that's so much legwork. And then also you're not bludgeoning anymore. You're like leaving openings for people to say, yes, but I feel in other ways he's not. And then there's a back and forth that you get stuck going through that I guess people don't want to do. Right. Because not every politician who bashes the media is a fascist. That is yeah. not necessarily a staple of fascism. That is one of the things that is in the most famous examples of fascism that we have that was there. That is part of the problem is because you have an entire category of people who, like with the word socialism, are no longer scared of the word fascism. But if you just call it Trumpism, because some people like Trump, it doesn't hit them in the gut the way the word fascism does. Where you right. are picturing concentration camps and rallies and banners and fear and secret police, you know, dragging people out of their homes at night. And so this is what this whole episode has been about, that there are words that have emotions tied to them that we favor, not because they're accurate, but because they make people feel a certain way or they make people act a certain way or vote a certain way. And it is, in many cases, almost fatal to what you're trying to do with, with language and as just society. I'm excited about the idea that as far as a takeaway for people, they can be more thoughtful about how they use language and encourage other people to. That is, I think, the whole solution. I guess. But the conflict of the modern age is, is there an advantage to doing things the dumb way? Because oh, what yeah. we have seemed to have decided is that if you are arguing with nuance, by definition, nuance is weak. Whereas if you are be able to able to march out with a banner and say, everyone who doesn't do my thing will die. If your message, <laughs> even if it's false, if it hits people in the gut, if it scares them, 
that that is a more effective way of communicating. The, the moment you try to introduce nuance, people say it becomes less effective. So it is better to just call him a Nazi. That will get people to the polls. And all of my arguments about like, yeah, but once you erode the concept of words meaning things, once you erode your credibility and it's clear that you are willing to use irresponsible language just to smear someone that you disagree with or you think is destructive, that that is bad in the long run. Most people don't seem to agree. I think most people agree that the things that I think of as scaremongering, of oversimplifying, that that's simply how you have to do it. That, yeah. that humans are emotional creatures. We're not logical creatures. We don't act on our intellect. We act on our gut. And that if you want positive change, that's how you have to hit it. And if that means painting your opponent with some slur that maybe doesn't specifically apply, well, then that's just what you do. Because ultimately, that that's what wins and that will make the world better. It really does feel like an age of nuance versus everything else. And uh, go nuance, I guess. Yeah, try, try selling that as a t-shirt and see how well it goes. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for surveying the entire range of things we say and helping pick out those logical bear traps that we all keep stepping in. Also, I hope you'll step happily and safely into our footnotes, where you will find a range of pieces from Cracked and elsewhere about the trap that talking can be. And one of my favorites is a piece from The Economist called Three Post-War Liberals Strove to Establish the Meaning of Freedom. I know it's a very heavy title, uh, but the, the first chunk of it covers a thinker named Isaiah Berlin, and he grew up in Russia through the Russian Revolution, eventually found his way out of there to Britain, and he developed some fascinating theories on what we actually mean in Britain and America and other democracies when we use the word freedom. Spoiler for that article, people on both sides of our political divide use those words in opposite ways that still kind of match. And I feel like the whole disagreement on a lot of that stuff is just that those words can be kind of unclear. Isn't that amazing? We built like an entire country and a whole thing on a word that people are using completely differently. Isn't that neat? I think it is. And you can find out why there. In the meantime, thank you for hearing all of the terms we used today. You got to hear them thanks to the engineering efforts of Devin Bryant and the editing triumphs of Chris Souza. That's right, triumphs. Also, that theme music you heard is a song called Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. We thank them for that. If you loved this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing I will have fun news on soon. Check that out. Find my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates and my newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.